the Oyster Stew podcast, where we discuss what's happening in the industry based on what we see as we work with regulators and clients. Oyster consultants are industry practitioners. We aren't career consultants. We've done your job and we know the issues you face. You can learn more about Oyster Consulting and the value we can add to your firm by going to our website, oysterllc.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Regulators Behind the Scenes. We've talked before this about the the level of severity and, and how people perceive what the regulators are going to do. And I think it'd be great for us to address, you know, our thoughts and experiences on what happens with when regulators find violations, how they deal with it. Um, maybe start with Jeff. Sure. I have been in situations when a regulator has sat down and they've raised concerns about a particular issue. When they first raise these issues, I think it's a good time to listen, to find out whether they have a big, the true picture, to see what they're trying to get at, and to see whether it's something that, on the risk scale, how word you'd put it. So my first sort of thought would be to really listen to the issue they're uh, getting to. And then seeing if there's saying, look, let's let's discuss this later. Let me gather some more facts and try to put a fuller picture around it. And at the same time, you want to escalate that in the firm to others, such as the legal department, maybe the risk department, and get more answers before you go back to talk with them. And I find that candor and straightforwardness, eagerness or zealousness to fix things and fix them quickly in a proper way are how I would address it initially. There are cases where they're wrong and additional facts will help you supplement that. But I, I have had incidences where, in fact, we got a Wells notice from FINRA about something. And it was, you know, we took a week's worth of testimony and things on various issues and sent us a Wells notice. And we pretty easy to explain, wait a minute, you totally missed this. We talked about this during the testimony that these were just journal entries. They weren't actually trades. They were sort of dividends that were reinvested and things like that. So this trading activity that you're complaining about or you're concerned about didn't really occur. And there are times when there's a misunderstanding by the regulators or by the firm as to what the issue is and things like that. And it's always important to make sure that, you know, you understand what the concern is and and you understand and how to explain it the best you can. But Ed, your thoughts on dealing with the violations? Yeah, yeah, I think that's spot on because I think there's really two determinations that have to be made by the regulators, right? The first is whether there is a violation. And the second is if there is a violation, what are we going to do about it? And those are two really separate discussions. To your point, there are several points during the examination where you can provide information to help to make that determination of whether there is or isn't a violation. And it starts to, to Jeffrey's point, when the examiners first start talking about it, before there's an exit conference, before there's an examination report that's issued, they're gonna let you know throughout the exam whether there's something that they see and start gathering information about it. So at that point, you wanna provide them as much information as you can to help show them that we don't think that there's a violation. Or again, to Jeffrey's point, there is a violation and we're starting to take care of it. Then there's a lot of levels of review that happen. So that's one thing that I, I'm not sure people appreciate is just the number of levels of review 
that go on throughout the course of the examination before there's a final determination. And examiners will turn it into their managers who review it. If it's something where there's a violation that, that looks like it might be referred to enforcement, senior management will usually take a look at it as well. So there's a lot of points of review, and those are also opportunities to get in front of the regulator and plead your case. But once it's been determined that there's a violation and that there's evidence that supports the violation, the question becomes, so what are you going to do about it? And at FINRA, and it, this is similar, I think, to what the other regulators do, we, we had different things that we could do, some formal action, some informal. So an exam could result in no action being taken. It can result in a letter of caution where we identify these are the issues that are found, show us how you're going to fix them. There were some cases where um, FINRA would hold what we called um, corrective action meetings, where it was something that was probably more egregious than a letter of caution would resolve, but didn't feel like it was something that should be referred to enforcement. So they might call the firm in to have a discussion about it and discuss how the firm's going to resolve the issue. If none of those things work or don't appear to be appropriate, then the determination is made to refer it to enforcement. The factors that are considered are, they'll take a look at the violation and look to see and weigh aggravating factors and mitigating factors. Uh, things like, was there customer harm? Uh, was there intent to harm the customers? The, were the firm's procedures and supervision good or were they poor? when this was raised to the firm, what did they do about it? Did they take action? Did they dig their heels in and argue about it? All of those factors are weighed into making the determination of whether to refer a matter to enforcement. And there are a couple of documents from FINRA's perspective that I would look to. One, FINRA issued an enforcement guiding principles document, which outlines some of the factors that they look to when making those determinations. But then also something that was recently amended are FINRA sanction guidelines. In those sanction guidelines, they outline aggravating and mitigating factors based on uh, by violation. So you can see what are the specific things that regulators look at when determining both sanctions, but also whether to make a referral to enforcement. One of the things that we've all talked about in preparing for this, some number of firms that think everything, every violation is going to turn into enforcement referral. And frankly, that's we know that's not the case. The number of, of exams that turn into enforcement or enforcement referrals or enforcement actions is really pretty small, at least from my experience, and I think everybody else agrees. The other the other challenges is, is there's a lot of steps before we get to an enforcement referral. I mean, there's you guys correct me if I'm wrong, but there are deficiency letters that require corrective action or corrective action statement that's required. I don't know if they're still doing compliance conferences, but they used to do call you in, have a conference with you, discuss the issues and concerns. And that those are much more prevalent than an enforcement referral is is sort of the almost final step in the in the process if um, you have some very serious violations and deficiencies. But Jeff, did you have something to add? I, I would agree that uh, there are many, many steps before you would ever get to an enforcement action. If it arises from the course of a of an examination and they have an issue that they've decided or told you they're going to refer to enforcement, I think that before that time, you would have had a lot of opportunities to probably steer it in a different direction or at least make sure that that 
they have all the information they need. Patrick, if I can add a couple of things, maybe from a, from a state perspective, one of the things, and I'm not sure a lot of people in the industry are aware of this, is that unlike the SEC is able to enforce, of course, SEC FINRA rules, you know, FINRA has certain regulations, but one of the things that a lot of states do is they adopt FINRA, SEC, MSRB, and NASA model rules and guidelines, as well as state statutory references for each individual state. So, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, needs to be clear is that a state can bring an action based upon a state law, a FINRA rule, the regulation, SEC regulation, MSRB re regulation. And one of the things, so, so that's something there to make sure you understand the jurisdiction of the regulator that you're, that you're dealing with. And I think one of the other things that's really important, understand, meet those regulators, because one of those things that, that I can tell you, there were many people in the industry that knew me, and they would feel very comfortable calling me. Think, Ed, you kind of mentioned the situation of, you know, maybe people reaching out, either from the regulatory side or from the industry side to the regulator. And I can tell you many times when examiners were conducting exams or investigations, they would bring attorneys in. They would bring consultants in, very much like us here on the panel today. And the one thing that people would say, before you get to that point of resolving that case, we want to have the opportunity to come in and talk to you. We want to meet with you. We want to make sure that we're all the same understanding. We want to make sure that if someone did not provide a record to you and we can correct that, we want to do that. So. I think it's it's imperative to know the rules, the regulations, but it's also important, if you can, to know who the players are. Because as Ed said, many times, and most cases will end up in a cautionary or deficiency letter, large percentage of cases will end up in a formal but a negotiated settlement, and very few cases actually go to an administrative proceeding. You know, that, that's just the way the process works. So understand rules, regulations, processes, players, and people. Those are, that's my recommendation. And, and Bill, just, just to your point, and, and I want to emphasize this, is there have been a number of times that I've been involved with where something looked like it was going to be a violation and maybe an enforcement referral. And even late in the game, information or evidence is provided that says, hey, either this isn't a violation or it might be a violation, but has significant mitigation that we've changed our minds. So I would never foreclose on reaching out to the regulators, providing whatever information that you think would be helpful because they don't want to be at a hearing and have that information come at that point. I would agree. And I think we all have discussed it to some degree that the fact that the examiners or the people that you deal with in the field don't necessarily have the final say on what's going to happen or what you know what the outcome is going to be. You occasionally will get some pretty zealous examiners that think everything is a major issue and a major problem, but gets back to the more seasoned, experienced folks at the office. A lot of those things get toned down or I think reduced in the severity and the consequences and all of that. So there is certainly some, there is some logic and some appreciation for talking to supervisors, asking to talk to an examiner supervisor, asking to take things up the chain 
if you really have an issue you feel strongly about or you think you're being mistreated is not the right word, but if you think you're being misunderstood or you think that there is a, a serious difference in what you think the rule requires and what the examiner does, it sometimes is worth going to a supervisor or asking to talk to a supervisor and taking it up the chain before it gets too far along. And that's an issue that I think we've all dealt with. I don't, Evan, your thoughts on that? Examiners in the field conducting the uh, examination are rarely going to give you any certainty as to any findings at that stage. As everyone here has pointed out, it, even a de, an exam deficiency goes through a, a process by which it's reviewed. And nevertheless, that examiner in the field is the person giving the information to, to the people up the line. And when you get an indication that that examiner might have found a problem, and you can tell by the questions, by the documents, by the follow-up, whether that might be the case, I think it's, it's then you need to say, look, Maybe there's something else here I can explain to you because maybe your best defense, your best explanation is not in those written documents that they've you've produced and they've requested. Now, it'd be great if it is. I mean, that's the goal. But sometimes your best explanation is outside those documents and you need to make the examiner aware of it. That story goes along up the line. And ideally, maybe that possible deficiency doesn't go up the line if you can shut it down during the exam process. Uh, the one question or the one issue that I've heard for years from firms about examinations, they say, the examiner doesn't understand my business. I have to take my time to explain my business to the examiner. Well, that's not such a bad idea to explain your business to the examiner. In fact, it's a pretty good idea. And sometimes the examiner will ask questions just to hear you explain it. It's not that they may not know it or understand it, but they want you to explain it to them. So if they want you to explain your business, I would rather than have a deep sigh and roll your eyes, take the opportunity to explain it and to provide that explanation that puts your business and your program in the best light. I think it's a good point. I would say in some of the initial meetings I've attended, with the regulators, I generally had my CEO uh, of whatever asset management company I was working to come into the initial meeting to say we want to cooperate to set the tone. Uh, I have also seen circumstances or been involved in a circumstance where the legal department decided to fight something with document production and made it worse. What didn't necessarily have to hand, end up in a uh, enforcement action. They took months and months and months because they said they were reviewing emails. And then when the examiners got the emails, it was readily apparent by what was in the emails with pornography, advertisements, and everything that they knew that the firm wasn't being straight. And so it's a delicate balance as to what you have to do and the way you do it. You know, I, I've seen firms that have done this really well, where the examiners would come in on the first day and they would sit down with them with a PowerPoint presentation and explain the firm, the activities they were involved in, the products they sell, how the firm was organized, who did what. It took a little time, but to the earlier point, you want the examiners to understand your business because if they have violations, you want them to be able to put that in the context of what you do. 
the other thing too is it it starts the examination off on a positive note that you're there and you're going to help them and you also then really own the message because you're explaining to them what the firm does as opposed to them trying to figure it out on their own so to the extent that you can do that and educate the examiners at the beginning of the exam i think it definitely benefit and i think will really go a long way one of the things that when ed you were talking about explaining your firm or explaining what you do and things i was the cco for a firm that was wholesaling structured products and structured notes Right from the get-go, we got an exam six months after the firm got registered. I spent a, a while explaining to the examiner how we actually operated, what we did, how the firm did it, how we, all of those sorts of things. So if your business lines are a little unusual or a little different or relatively new or something that's not a day-to-day sort of operations, you may want to be prepared to explain to the examiner what your business is, what your business model is, why it works, why you're exempt from submitting stuff for advertising because it's all internal use only, those kinds of things. I went through a lot of those issues on that. that, And had we not sort of gone about it with the idea that we were going to explain it and cooperate and everything else, that exam could have gone very differently. And it turned out to be very successful with very few minor issues, but a lot of it was knowing up front that we were going to have to do a lot of explaining to make sure that they understood because it was a relatively new business model at the time that we did it. So I've heard a lot of people say that they have to educate the SEC or FINRA or whoever comes in. And I will say that many of the firms that I went to or work with, it could take me a year to understand their business because it was so complex and had so many different, they might've had like sub-advisors and little boutiques. And so I would approach explaining the business to the examiners as an opportunity to steer them to what the culture and what the business really does. It's not that simple from the outside looking in. Thanks for listening and join us again on our next episode where we discuss cooperation with the regulators and the importance of cultivating a culture of compliance. like what you heard, make sure to follow the Oyster Stew podcast on whatever platform you listen to. If you'd like to learn how we can help firms start, run, protect, and grow their business, visit our website at oysterllc.com.